This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice, but you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. This week, we're celebrating hip-hop's 50th anniversary by featuring interviews from our archive with performers who hold a significant place in that history. Today, two groups known for their innovative sampling and smart, clever lyrics, De La Soul and the Beastie Boys. We'll start with De La Soul. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Tell me, mirror, what is wrong? Can it be my De La clothes or is it just my De La Soul? Soul made its debut in 1989 with the album Three Feet High and Rising, which went against the grain of harder rap that was prominent at the time. The album was not only fun, it was funny. It sampled a wide range of music from Liberace to Steely Dan to George Clinton, and it helped launch what was called the Native Tongues Movement, a collective of hip-hop artists known for positive, playful lyrics and a lack of posturing. The founding members of De La Soul were David Jolicoeur, or Dave, otherwise known as Trugoy the Dove, Vincent Mason, known as Mace, and Kelvin Mercer, known as Paz, or Paz Denus. The group formed when they were in high school in Amityville, Long Island, and were discovered by DJ and producer Prince Paul. Their album, Three Feet High and Rising, is in the Library of Congress's National Recording Registry, But despite their influence, their music had been unavailable for years because of legal issues having to do with their record company and sampling. This year, they got the rights to their master recordings, and now you can stream and download their music. But sadly, Dave Jolicoeur died in February at the age of 54, just before their music became available. In 2000, I spoke to Dave and Mace after the release of their album, Art Official Intelligence. Dave Mace, welcome to Fresh Air. Thanks for having us. us. Let me uh, play something from the first De La Soul record, Three Feet High and Rising. Mm -hmm. And um, on this CD, you you pay tribute to a type of kid song I imagine you grew up with, which is Multiplication Mm -hmm. Rock. And uh, so this kind of takes off from there. Let's hear it. This is Three is the Magic Number. That's from De La Soul's first CD. It was really refreshing, I think, to hear rap that was ironic and really playful. And I'm wondering if you were 
almost afraid to do that then because it was so different from the kind of more hardcore rap that took itself really seriously about how good the rapper was in bed or on the street or at the microphone? No, we weren't afraid. I mean, that's really where we come from. That's what we knew. So that's yeah. what we knew to implement in our music. It was an innocence. We paid no mind to what was happening on around us. I mean, you know, the people that we were, we admired and looked up to were the Run DMCs and the Public Enemies and the LL Cool J's and KRS-1s. And, you know, none of these groups sound anything alike. You know, everyone was doing their own thing. So to step into the game or even try to introduce our game, ourselves to the game was like, okay, well, we're bringing our own thing to light also. And um, there was an innocence there that, 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 you know, paid no attention to fads, what was in, you know, um, what was selling and what was not and what wasn't. It was just, you know, a couple of kids just getting together and having a good time and, and, and giving a product to a company that had bigger plans for it, you know. And um, that's where it was with us. So, I mean, to, to sit back and really analyze the situation and say, wow, are we going to make it? Is this going to be accepted or what have you? That was, that was no concern of ours. Um, what, what's the range of reactions you got to that first CD, which was filled with humor and irony, and we'll get to this later, with samples for, from just all kinds of different music? People loved what we did. I mean, I have to honestly say that's my favorite and probably will be the best album um, that I felt like we've ever done. Like I said, there weren't any boundaries. We were just some young kids having a good time, and people respected it for that. It was like, wow, these guys aren't, you know, afraid to give themselves 100%, whether you thought it was childish, whether you thought it was funny, or whether you thought it was ingenious. It was just people accepted it. People was like, wow, I always wanted to do something like that, but I just was afraid to put it, you know, on tape. I always wanted to sample that, but I didn't think it would work. And it was all always good to hear, you know, the toughest of the tough, you know, the gangsters, you know, someone like a KRS-One at our first release party just praising us like, wow, De La Soul, you guys are incredible, this is crazy, or DMC from Run DMC having to get to our first show that we ever did was like, yo, I got to be here front row, I got to be right in the front. It was good to see those people that, you know, went out and bought records for years just loving what we did, it was excellent. Did you think anything was misinterpreted? I think the only thing that maybe was misinterpreted that people kept classifying us to be hippies, you know, and we didn't really have an understanding of what that was all about. Um, I wonder how much cool. of that just came from the design on the album jacket, yeah, which I think had, it like, came daisies from the on it. And, uh-huh. Yeah, people misinterpreted the look, you know. I mean, I think people thought that we were going out um, trying to... Uh, advertise ourselves as, you know, this fun-loving, you know, 60s hip-hop group. And I was born in the late 60s. I knew nothing about, you know. <laughs> I'm a 70s baby you know, myself. So, um, I think that's that's the only thing that kind of, like, got at us, where it was like, you know, when it came do- down to publicity and advertising the record, people always wanted us to take pictures with flowers and make sure you wear yellow and lime green. And, you know, it's like, you know. <laughs> Well, I want to wear brown today, you know, so it was that kind of a thing that was kind of a bit annoying. The samples on that first CD included Steely Dan, Liberace, Otis Redding, the Jarmels, who did a little bit of soap, Stand, uh, Stand By Me, I think, is sampled on it, the Benny King record. Mm-hmm. There's a French mm-hmm. language instruction record. How did you know all these records? Parents' record collections. Yeah. Them. That's really what it was. I mean, I was kind of hung up. In the funk era and reggae era with my parents and my uncles and stuff. And and my parents were listening to Perry Cuomo, Liberace, <laughs> really? Sam Davis Jr., and, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. And, and, and Pa's parents have a real strong Southern background. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, so they listen to a lot of Otis Redding and, and, yeah, you know, a lot of stuff that was on this popular station called ABC back in the day. Oh, yeah. Home of the Good right. Guys. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Where we got... You know, and then of course Prince Paul, who collected stuff like Multiplication Rock, Rock. and Mickey Mouse records, and you know all sorts of kitty records like that. So just you know, everybody bringing their fourth into it made Three Feet High and Rising what it was. So are these all records that you really liked, even if you liked some of them for being really bad. I mean, for just really being so awful that they were fun. 
Oh yeah, you. I mean, you're always gonna find something. I, you know, it's not every record. I mean, there are a lot of records that are in our crates that you know are just like you know just for one thing. But that one thing makes it special. That Liberace record. Yeah. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna sit here and say that I listen to Liberace all day. But you know, so that that introduction was just incredible. You know, and and that worked for De La Soul. It was like you know that had to go on the record. Well, I think we'd better hear the Liberace sample. All right. And now for my next number, I'd like to return to the classics. Perhaps the most famous classic in all the world of music. World of music. World of music. World of music. The first time around, you didn't quite understand how Mustafa speaks. Don't worry, we can fix that right now. So why don't you all just grab your bag? Come on board, hoist the anchor. We'll be off. That's from De La Soul's first CD, Three Feet High and Rising. My guests are two of the three members of the group, Dave and Mace, and they have a new CD, um, which is called Artificial Intelligence. So when you started um, sampling, uh, I'm wondering if you started shopping for records in a different way than you ever did before, just looking for, for cool things to put on your own records. What's, what's so funny, the method of shopping for records was kind of like really different i mean and it's like that for a lot of hip-hop artists we sometimes are clueless of the artists and what music they play and what instruments or what type of music it is we, sometimes we just we're looking at a couple of things we're looking at the year we're looking at what instruments are being played we're looking at the font on the record if it looks like it's psychedelic that might have something different if it looks jazzy it might have you know we're, we're looking at a lot of other things more than who the musician is and what the songs are. You know, it's it, it's funny how we shop for records. It really is. It's you know, you're looking for certain labels. You like I said, you're looking for the font on the album cover, and you're looking for the year. Do you mostly go to used record stores and look for vinyl, or do you use CDs for sampling too? I personally look for vinyl due to the fact that I'm a DJ and I highly support vinyl, and. When I am DJing, I like to put a lot of obscure scratches into what I'm doing sometimes, let alone playing some of these old records. You know, some of these old records that I've been looking for, like a King Floyd record or Otis Redding record that I would love to play in a party, like to play a certain break in a party or something like that and then go into my next tune. So I'm highly supportive of shopping for vinyl. It's just a, a DJ thing. It is. I think just, you know, seeing how many much how much more records you can just load into that garage that's already <laughs> looking like a, some sort of a... Record store. You know? <laughs> a record junkyard. Yeah. You know? It's just, it's just, it's always a good feeling also to just crack that new plastic and then put something on that turntable and hope that you find the most incredible, you know, uh, horn section or drum loop. or It's just exciting. Now, um, after your first CD, you were sued by the Turtles for sampling something from one of their records. What was the outcome mm. of the suit? Um, it was settled. Settled out of court. It was mm -hmm. settled out of court. Um, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, what happened was the record Three Feet High and Rosin was, uh, there was a demand for it, and the rush was there to get it in stores. And, you know, we turned in all sample information and what we sampled and what we needed cleared. And unfortunately, the record label just didn't take its time out to you know, to, to hash out all business prior to putting the record out. So the sample clearance thing never happened, um, and the record obviously took off. And, and rightfully, you know, the Turtles came back and, you know, sued us for, you know, not clearing the samples. That's fine. That was, that was cool. We, but we did settle it out of court, and um, all is well. What impact do you think that suit had on other rappers? Um... It had an impact on rap as a whole. I think, you know, ourselves and the whole Bismarck suit when his um, album got pulled off the shelves. You know, nowadays you, you got to clear you got to clear samples. I mean, sampling is big business now. Yeah, it's right. huge. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, we we were a small part of that. I mean, uh, but something that we always respected. I mean, even before the sampling laws came out and as strict as they are now. You know, like I said, Three Feet High and Rising record, we tried to clear as much as we could. Here's another track from Three Feet High and Rising, their first album, which was released in 1989.
Greetings, girl, and welcome to my world of phrasing right up to back. It's the daisy age, you're about to walk top stage, so wipe your lottoes on the mat. Hip-hop love this is, and don't mind when I quiz your evolvements before the sun. But clear your court, cause this a one-man sport, and who's better for this than plugged one? Plug don't one. have to worry about me squashing other deals, cause they've already been squished. Freeze a frame of our moves the same, wish we can continue right behind the bush. You'll stay with me, I know this, but not because of all my earthly treasures, or regardless to the fact that I'm possibly loose, but because... How do you think your experiences growing up in Amityville, Long Island, which is a suburb of New York, compared to the experiences of some urban rappers who ended up doing more, you know, hardcore kind of raps? It's a different um, upbringing. I mean, Long Island and especially Amityville gave us the opportunity to not be around maybe all the inner city uh, elements, you know, schoolyard and... And that was know. just back then. Yeah. <laughs> Nowadays, Long Island is not that much different from... Yeah, it's city. not that much different. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, whether you're dealing with, you know, the next person on top of you and projects and, you know, it's overcrowded or what have you, you know, you, we, you know, you had a single family home, your own bedroom, a big backyard to play in, and, you know, you did things like went to... Uh, Tanner Park and went fishing or, you know... You, it's just room to be an individual. Yeah, room to breathe, out. room to get to see different things. You know, go out east and go on pony rides or, you know, go to the farm or, you know, you got a chance to see different things and your mind was open to new and different things opposed to, you know, the kids who were just who just got the park and that's it. Did you ever go through a phase of trying to pretend like you were from you know, an inner-city background. Well, no. myself and Dave both lived in Brooklyn at one time. Yeah, I mean, it was a part of our lives regardless. We got the best of both worlds, you know. We had the opportunity to see the grimy part and, you know, appreciate, you know, getting out of the hood, you know. You know, a lot of rappers nowadays will represent the hood to the fullest, and I'll be honest, I don't want to represent the hood. I want to get out of the hood. I want to get out of the hood. So it's like, you know, we, we've, seen, we've seen the best of both worlds, and I think it's important as a young black male to get to see both worlds because you're going to have to be a part of it in, in life regardless. You're going, to be, you're going to be put in that position where people think that that's where you're from anyway. So it's, it, it's not a problem knowing it, nor are we ashamed to be a part of it. It's just sickening when you hear those who act as if that's the best place to be. I'm proud of, of being raised in Long Island, part of my life. I think I'm doing the community a service by getting out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And plus, on top of that, I mean, when now that we're fathers, you know, Long Island, Long Island is cool. It's not the best as it used to be, but it just motivates me to know if my parents got me out of Brooklyn, then I can get my kids out of Long Island. And that's all it's doing for us and it's done for us. I'm wondering if either of you had parents who were uh, very political and not necessarily voting booth politics, but just in, ha- in terms of having a kind of political social analysis of, uh, of class and race in America and if they talked to you a lot about that. I think we grew up with parents who just, you know, had, you know, moral backbone. It was like, you know... I'm not sending my kid out in the street looking any old way. I'm not going to send my kid out in the streets or into school, you know, not knowing how to speak. You know, my parents were were very strict. And, and you know, if we got out of line, you know, we, we got dealt with also. And, and I, you know, it doesn't necessarily take, you know, mom and dad in the household. Perfect example is Mace. And it's like, you know... Um, Seeing how his mom was, and Miss Mason raised us, myself, Paz. You know, it's like you know when you when we weren't at home with our parents, she was there making sure that we were in order. You know, so I could imagine how it went down in his in his house. I grew up in a single parent home. You know, I come from a lot of the struggle that that these rappers talk about. I've been on welfare. I've lived from house to house. I lived in one bedroom apartment, putting milk on a windowsill, and. You know, the, regardless of all the tribes and tribulations I've been through with my mom, my mother's my hero. You know, she's she's she struggled, and she struggled to really provide a good life for me and my brother. She did everything possibly under the sun to make sure that we've had a 
pretty stable life, you know, working odd jobs as well as having public assistance. So. Yeah, I mean, and sometimes it goes just further than just putting food on the table. I mean, you know, after they put food on the table, they made sure that you held the fork the right way and, you know, you didn't stuff those your mouth like a, head. Yeah, and those things were more important than, you know, her working a uh, 12-hour shift or what have you, or um, my mom and my dad trading up on shifts and, you know, you babysit them then while I go on. It's like, you know, a lot of things, a lot of other things were important to them too, so... That's kind of what molded us to be the people that we are today. Well, I want to thank you both so much for talking with us. Thanks for having us. Dave and Mace of De La Soul recorded in 2000. Dave Jolicoeur died in February. The following month, De La Soul's music finally became available for streaming and download after legal issues had held it up. Coming up, we'll hear my 2006 interview with the Beastie Boys. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. Access to her code, love struck, was my mode. Took a look, dropped my textbook, Jennifer. Oh, breakfast, broken fast. She was in my English class. Asked for notes, rocked my boat, Jennifer. Oh, Jenny, lost her favorite penny. So I gave her a dollar. She kissed me and I hollered. In a flash, the school bell rang. Jenny grabbed onto my hand, took me home, and said, True gorgeous. Swing it, swing it, swing. This message comes from NPR sponsor Stearns and Foster. To Stearns and Foster, your comfort is their everything. So they've made a mattress that's irresistible inside and out. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted. Every stitch, every layer uses the finest materials, like indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for the coziness you want with the support you need. Timeless quality for your most comfortable sleep. Stearns & Foster, what comfort should be. More at StearnsAndFoster.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Grammarly. Today, people are working to innovate and do more in their workdays, but coming up with fresh ideas and quick responses can be tough. Introducing Grammarly Go, a product offering personalized generative AI communication assistance that will change the way you write. With just a few clicks, Grammarly Go can ideate, compose, and rewrite thoughtfully, accelerating your productivity and unlocking your creativity. Go to Grammarly.com go. Every weekday, NPR's best political reporters come to you on the NPR Politics Podcast to explain the big news coming out of Washington, the campaign trail, and beyond. We don't just want to tell you what happened. We tell you why it matters. Join the NPR Politics Podcast every single afternoon to understand the world through political eyes. This is Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado. If you're already a Fresh Air Plus supporter, you may have heard Terry talking about the first daily national broadcast of the show in 1987. It was still like making a national debut both to the audience and to program directors because we weren't on that many stations to start with. Dave Davies talking about his job driving a cab. This is a fascinating city of many diverse neighborhoods, and it was fun to just tool around in a cab all day. Or archival interviews with people like Arthur Miller, Nina Simone, and Audrey Hepburn. Timing you can't rehearse. It's an instinct. Mm -hmm. Especially comedy. I mean, that's what made Cary unique. That's why there haven't been a whole lot of Cary Grants. Are you not a Fresh Air Plus supporter yet? You could be. Subscribe on plus.npr.org or on Apple Podcasts. Let's continue our hip-hop history series with the interview I recorded in 2006 with the Beastie Boys, Mike Diamond, Adam Horowitz, and Adam Yauch. In 1987, they released Licensed to Ill, the first hip-hop album to reach number one on the pop charts. Brass monkey, that monkey monkey. Brass monkey chunky, that monkey monkey. Mike D, Ad-Rock, and MCA, as they're better known, met when they were teenagers in New York City in the early 80s. At first they were a punk band, but they started to incorporate hip-hop into their music, collaborating with Def Jam Records co-founders Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons. 
Early on, they were dismissed by some as a novelty act for suburban MTV fans. Three white privileged kids swilling beer on stage, fighting for their right to party. But they turned out to be smarter than they first appeared, getting critical acclaim for their clever, playful lyrics and inventive layered sampling. They also became more political. They staged the Tibetan Freedom Concert in 1996 and supported anti-violence and anti-war campaigns. They also apologized for the misogyny of their early lyrics. The Beastie Boys recorded and performed for decades until the death of Adam Yauch in 2012. When we spoke in 2006, they had released a new concert film. Let's start with a track from their 1992 album, Check Your Head. Boys, welcome to Fresh Air. <laughs> hey, 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 hey. <laughs> um, That's all Swedish for what's so. up. What's it like now Good to times. sing things that you wrote, you know, 20, 25 years ago when, when you were much younger? You've changed a lot over the years. Um, do the lyrics still fit you? It's a little awkward at times. It's a bit <laughs> yeah. Some of them are dumb, but yeah, it's just, it's just fun, you know. It's, sometimes it's fun to just play the old songs anyway, no matter how stupid they are. Have you revised any lyrics that you're no longer comfortable with? Lyrics from, from yeah, we. I mean, I know I do personally. Some of the sh- stuff that I, that I say on License to Ill, I say some real dumb stuff, and so, you know, I like the song, and the song's important to you know people that like us or listen to us, and so it's important. So I, you know, and I and I like the songs too. So I think it's good to play. You know, if that's what if that's what people want, you know, we should, you know, why why not play the songs? But I definitely there's some things that I don't like to say, so I'll just change it up. Yeah, but I think overall people are just happy that we play those songs. Right. That, you know what I mean? That people are much happier that they go see a show and that we play songs that they love. And it, honestly, we we switch up a few words so that they they make it into something that we're comfortable with. But then. like sometimes for me, I don't. Some lyrics I'll change up, but sometimes I just think, ah, everyone knows it's just a goof, you know? Everyone knows it's just some some that's not meant to be serious. So sometimes I just leave them what they are. Right. I mean, so, it's not... I don't, it's not that often that we plan it ahead of time. It's just sort of like while we're doing the song, as the thing comes up, I'm like, oh, snap, this next lyric is going to come up, and it's stupid, so I just change it at the last minute. Can you give us an example of something you've changed? I can't think of anything yeah, off the top to of my head, but just some dumb things about, like, I don't even know. It's usually the more sexist ones. Are yeah, the ones you switch yeah. Up. I do have one that I'm particularly proud of, and I'm not sure even who it came from, but in No Sleep to Brooklyn, I say, and Yauk's in the back at the Mahjong board. Yeah, and uh, I'm not even sure what he, what is the original. Uh, I don't even know if we could say it on the air. Yeah, yeah, I don't even know what. Yeah, if we could, but uh, I just particularly like that because it kind of really reflects where we're at now. Now you started off as as a punk band. Uh, what? How did you switch from from punk to rap? I mean, we were we were kind of listening to a lot of hip hop even when when we were a punk band back in those days. Even in the like small punk clubs like Tier Three and Rock Lounge and uh, and, Mud Club. and A Seven and One Seven One A Mud Club, they they used to play like Funky Four Plus One and Sugar Hill Gang and uh, and and a lot of old hip hop records. So we we kind of before like, it was hip hop. So yeah, right when it was just called rap, I guess. So so we were like kind of, I mean, we used to listen to that all the time too, and we were into rhyming and like learning the rhymes on those records, and so we were kind of. Into both simultaneously, and then but then we started we started making rap when we were in the studio. We started making stuff. Your, your first hit was "Fight for Your Right," and um, Adam Yauch in the liner notes of uh, a Best of collection, you write that the song began as a goof and that it started as a satire of "I Want to Rock" kind of songs. So, what did you have in mind when when you wrote that? Yeah, basically that. I think you summed it. I was just kind of like just one of those like smoking in the boys' room type things. Just thought it was kind of funny. But I, I don't. I don't think we realized that it was going to be 
the sort of the the main focus of the album that it was gonna like i think the way we were looking at it we were just kind of making this dumb song that it'd sit somewhere on the album but i think that uh cbs and rick and and uh saw it as as being able to be something much larger than what we imagined and they they kind of made it the uh the main um focus of the of the album let me play the record and then we'll we'll talk about it a little bit more uh, okay Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the Beastie Boys Fight for Your Right. Yeah! Kick it! So okay, so this is like your your first big single, a really big hit, um, and you're saying it started out kind of as a goof. So did your fans misunderstand who you were? I think maybe we just ended up with a different bunch of fans than we expected. Like I think if we could have picked at the time, like if I could have known, like how much that record would have uh, that song would have informed everyone about the album, to use Mike's word, informed. Um, <laughs> I probably, my choice would have been more to pick like a different song to be the main single, like Hold It Now or Slow and Low or uh, or Posse in Effect or one of the other uh, cuts. But anyway, that song was the one that informed everyone. And so next thing you knew, we would go out and play shows and look and, and the whole place would just be full of like frat boys, like drunken frat boys. And so it was, uh, so there we were. You know, we and were then, talking. We were talking earlier about going from 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 punk to um, to hip hop. So I, I don't imagine you had a big, you know, frat boy uh, audience for your band when you were playing punk. We we definitely didn't when we were punk, and then also when we were playing hip hop. Like what we came out of by hooking up with Russell, we actually we had a we got like a really good education in terms of going on tour and opening up for Run DMC. Like we were on a tour opening for Run DMC, Houdini, mm-hmm. LL Cool J, so. That was like a completely hip hop audience. So to then all of a sudden go into this world of like kind of like I don't know, I guess a more pop audience and like kind of college kids wanting to to party and drink beer and go see a Beastie Boys show, that was completely foreign to us and beyond anything we ever imagined. Uh, Adam, in those liner notes, you write by drinking so much beer and acting like sexist macho jerks, we actually became just that. <laughs> So, it, d- did you feel like I never you, said that? <laughs> <laughs> did Did you feel like um, you were becoming the image that you created? I think so. Yeah, I think in a way, you know, it's almost like we started out kind of like goofing on it, but then just sort of became it in a way. It's it's the become what you hate syndrome. Yeah. So that you happens. S- you set out with an agenda of parody, and then a certain amount of time goes by, and you kind of cross that line. Yeah, like you parody something enough. You it's kind of like when you go to you England are. and you do a British accent the whole time, and then you come home and you have a fake British accent. So was there a point where you know you, what I mean? Yeah, was there a point? Where, <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> was 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 there a point where you said to yourselves, "We we crossed the line. We've we've become, we've become our own parody." Definitely, but I don't. I don't. I think the point that point almost came like we had to kind of get off of tour. And almost have a, a second away from that to sort of assess and realize look where everything was at. And and so what changed when you had that realization? Um, we sh- we switched to weed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then we made Paul's boutique, which was very different from the which I think um, some fans loved and some fans felt disappointed because it was a departure. What was different about it? Well, weed is a good word. It weeded out. It weeded out some fans too, and that was okay. <laughs> and found some fans that were weeded out. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah and and the fans that got uh, that moved on moved on to 
U2 or Scritty Politi or I don't know, whatever it was like. Scritty Politi. They, <laughs> they probably moved on to like wearing Dockers and. Right. They were mainly into like Ding Dada and stuff like that. Color Me Bad, you know, yeah. something like that. ABBA, all that, that whole genre of music. Yeah. I mean, I think like with Paul's Boutique, you had two things going on. You had like people who probably expected like Fight Fear Right to Party Part 2 and they were very disappointed and were like, this isn't what I want at all. And they got and weeded then, out. And they got weeded out. And then there were the fans that, that, um, we're like, wow, this this is this is whatever. This is something I'm really into. And they got weeded out. They got too. weeded out. They got in a different meaning of the word. We're listening back to my 2006 interview with the Beastie Boys, Mike Diamond, Adam Horowitz, and Adam Yauk. We'll hear more of the interview after a break. This is fresh air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and gives personalized recommendations based on the homes that you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. You can favorite homes, share listings with others, and even schedule tours with a local Redfin agent all in the app. When you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process, and they know how to help you win the right home at the right price. So download the Redfin app to get started today. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the official Hacks podcast from Max. Join the creators and showrunners of Hacks as they discuss each episode and speak with the cast and crew about the making of the series. Listen to the official Hacks podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, helps you build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. Check out The Noom Kitchen for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity don't begin or end with the news cycle. That's because we know race and identity impact every person and influence every story. We're getting into all of it with new voices each week on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. Let's get back to the interview I recorded in 2006 with the Beastie Boys, Mike Diamond, Adam Horowitz, and the late Adam Yauch. Here's a track from their second album, Paul's Boutique, which was released in 1989. You do a lot of raps where you basically pass off the mic to one another, a lot of like alternating uh, rapping. Um, so do you each write your own parts? On, on some stuff, there are some songs like So What You Want style where we're writing our own parts and singing our own parts, but there are, there are other songs like Hold It Now or, or Shake Your Rump or, or that style where we're, we all get together and write stuff and then we combine the lyrics that we've written and then we break them up and switch off uh, in the way we perform it. And in those type of songs, we're, I mean, we're all contributing to what's written, but we're not necessarily saying what we've written. We've just, we're just kind of like switching it off. However, we think it, you know, might sound cool, but it's, uh, that's, that's an older form of hip hop that you don't hear as much these days. I mean, if you listen to, to more like, uh, like Sugar Hill Gang records and, uh, and, and Funky Four and, and early, Hip hop, there's a lot more like switching off with groups these days. People tend to write their own parts and say their own parts, but we we sort of like like to go back to that that old style a bit. What comes first? You know, people always ask songwriters, "What comes first, the music or the lyrics?" What comes first for you? Is it is it like the words or the samples? Did... For us, generally, how we work, we'll put on um, a track that 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 we're working on, like and just kind of like a beat. It might even just be as simple as just a beat that's loop you know you loop four bars of it and we'll all sit in a room generally and write to it um 
So it's kind of like, yeah, that, that beat or that original musical idea leads the way, and then we sit down and then and take the books out and just and write to it, and then just start doing vocals. And a lot of times it'll be a while before it really all comes together, but basically we'll do the vocals and kind of sketch out an, an arrangement or a structure for it. But then we may keep swapping stuff, like we we put that beat down and throw some lyrics on it, but then we may wind up changing out the beat that's there, or we might end up changing out a lot of the lyrics that are there, but we just kind of keep messing around until we have something that we like. You flesh it out, you punch it up. <laughs> Chip away at it. Mm-hmm. So so you're in, you're in the same room when you're doing this? You're together? A lot of yeah. times. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> sometimes we... We write on our own, but but a lot of times we kind of need to like set aside time that we don't have like twenty thousand other things going on. So it's a little easier for us to like just get together and put on a beat and like set aside some time to just write, and then we all write. We also like it's more fun that way because we end up laughing about stuff or whatever. It's it's less efficient, but it is more fun because then yeah, we can all order lunch and that takes a few hours, and then we can order tea that takes a couple hours. We used to have a basketball court at our studio. But not that anymore. takes a few hours. Yeah. When you started sampling records, you know, after you started rapping, did you start listening to music differently, knowing that if you really loved, a, you know, a, a rhythm? Oh or yeah, you definitely you hear could, things you could differently. Use it. After, uh-huh. Every yeah, after everybody in everybody in America and, and damn near everybody in the world, since they've heard the new form of rap music with sampling, has listens to music differently. Yeah, like because then you hear like you hear a little beat or a break or, or something the like that. Car horns. Everybody start thinking loops. about, yeah, you start thinking about looping right away. Now, I, th- I think it's Superfly that you sample on uh, Eggman. Yep. Mm-hmm. It must have been. It must have been kind of cool to, you know, take that soundtrack and kind of make it make it your your soundtrack. Do you know what I mean? Like, who wouldn't want <laughs> a soundtrack? Well, like I that? Think, Do you know what I mean? I mean, to me, with yeah, when we were making Paul's boutique, like part of what was sometimes amazing to me in terms of the sampling was that, yeah, you you know, you kind of can put together whatever all-star group of people you want. You, know, you can have a Jimi Hendrix guitar line, Miles Davis playing a horn, and then a, a, a drum loop from a, a James Brown record or whatever. You know, you I mean, you can have any kind of juxtaposition or, or, and then you can have like Elvis Costello on there for one second mm-hmm. or the Ramones on there for one second. So you can kind of have, or Funky 4 plus one more, you can have like this crazy combination of whomever and whatever and whenever all together, however you like that. That to me, that's what's so unique about sampling. It completely defies like what you could do in terms of getting people together and actually making music. Yeah, like there's there's a moment I love in a remix that we put together of uh of we got a black flag guitar playing on top of a funky drummer James Brown beat. That uh, it's just cool that you have these different musicians playing together that from these completely different styles of music and you know creating this other thing. We're listening to my interview with the Beastie Boys, Mike Diamond, Adam Horowitz, and the late Adam Yauch. I spoke to them in 2006 when they released a new concert film. We'll hear more of the interview after a break. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from our sponsor, Whole Foods Market. Host a celebratory brunch for less with 365 by Whole Foods Market, featuring wallet-happy finds like cold smoked Atlantic salmon and more. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Hulu. We Were the Lucky Ones is the true story of one Jewish family's struggle to survive and reunite after being separated at the start of World War II. The series is for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including Outstanding Limited Series and Outstanding Lead Actress and Actor in a Limited Series for Joey King and Logan Lerman. For more information, visit fyc.hulu.com. You each come from families with pretty interesting artistic backgrounds. So if we could go around and, and if you could each talk a little bit about how, if at all, your parents' kind of artistic inclinations affected you when you were coming of age and developing your own artistic sensibility. Adam Horowitz, let's start with you. I mean, you're, you're, your father's a okay. pretty well-known playwright, uh, Israel Horowitz. Um, yeah. I grew up, uh, my dad, every time I was with my dad, he was always, not always, but he wrote. He's a writer, so he was always in his office writing. He made a plan, like a point of, this is my work. 
I'm going to do this every day for these amount of hours. So I think that's where I got like a work sort of ethic. That's why we like we work so so many hours we spend in the studio and it just seems kind of natural because just watching my dad how many hours he just spends in his office just writing and writing even when he doesn't have any particular story he's writing, you know what I mean? He'll just go in and just these are the hours he's got to do it. So you know, it was de- it was definitely influential to me just in terms of like a work ethic, just create whatever you know, whatever you do, create something. And that was kind of the impression I got. And definitely from my mom was very an art, a very, very artistic person. And that's uh, I got creativity from my mother. Um, M- Michael Diamond, your, your, your parents were in interior design. Do I have that right? Well, my dad was, uh, was actually involved with the art world. He was an art dealer. Okay. And uh, so, yeah, I don't know. For me, I'd just say my influences, I had two things. One was I was the, the biggest thing for me, I was the youngest of three brothers. Mm-hmm. So growing up here in Manhattan in New York City at the time that we grew up, like in the 70s and the 80s, it was such an influential time of so much music happening, so much, you know, just kind of like everywhere. And, it's you know, this is a time before the Internet. You know, you really had to have local access to things. And, things, and it was just like you had hip-hop, you had reggae, you had punk rock. And like everything was happening, and, if, and I kind of think like if I hadn't been, I don't know how I what my my entrance to all this kind of music would have been if I wasn't the youngest of of three kids because it was kind of like whatever my oldest brothers were going through, I wanted to do the same thing at the same time. So even though I was like only you know twelve or thirteen, whatever they were doing when they were sixteen, I had to be involved with it. So what were they listening to that you loved? I mean, whatever, that transition, I mean, that went from, like, stealing my brother's, you know, Steve Miller, Fly Like an Eagle, Eagle album, <laughs> to yeah. to then, like, discovering Elvis Costello through him, to then, you know, getting turned on to hip-hop from my friends, or stealing, you know, one of my brother's Bob Marley records. Yeah, I don't know, and then from my parents, I'm trying to think, I think, like, the biggest influence I got from my parents was just being exposed all the time to, like, they were really good about, especially since we grew up here in Manhattan, it wasn't like they would go to events and we'd stay at home, it's like, all the time we'd be going to type Galas? functions we'd be going to get ga- no i don't know gala events i think the kids got left at home for gala right, events right. i'd leave the kids at home for but a gala. you know if you're going to like an opening or you know all the time there were like you'd have like whatever creative people kind of coming in and out and i think like i learned as much from the kind of creative people around the periphery of like my parents as i did from going to school in a lot of ways adam yak your your father's an architect do i have that right um yeah but he's he's actually more of a painter you know these he he was he went to art school for painting um, for a long time, and then and then he switched over to architecture, and he was uh, he did that for a while, and now he's gone back to painting. And I think he's Google him. <laughs> 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 what what influence has that had on you? Um, well, you know, I went to college for a couple of years, and I remember uh, I remember like I was mostly signing up for like music classes and like art classes and all kinds of things. And I remember my mom kind of being like, "What are you doing? Like, if you're going to go to school, you got to take some more academics. This is ridiculous." And my dad just kind of said to me like, eh, "Do whatever you want. If you want to take art <laughs> classes, just take art classes. Wow. <laughs> I won't worry about it." Did you ever expect that the Beastie Boys would be together for 25 years? Um. Oh, do we expect that a band was going to be around for this long? No. We didn't know. I mean, it's not like we, we didn't, had no idea it was going to be for 25 days. Yeah. yeah. I mean, honestly, when we started the band, it was, there were, I, I, maybe I'm speaking for myself here. I, there was no, like, big ambition. It was kind of like, you know, that was a time when we were going to see bands all the time. A lot of our friends were in bands, so it just seemed like the natural thing. Like, okay, let's start a band and have fun. You know, we were in... Play a couple of gigs or whatever. Yeah, we were in high school. It wasn't like okay, we're going to take over the world and do this for our whole lifetimes. I mean, I do think, what I find is funny, I think in the last, like, um, I'd say about last three to five years, my mom has finally um, realized that, she, that I'm not going to get a day job. <laughs> like it's finally, now this has come come. Your legit. mom's probably listening to this right now, too. Yeah. You know, I think if we knew that, this, that the band was going to be around for this long, we probably would have thought of a better name. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. How'd you think of You want to give any shout-outs to Hester, any of the family, Mike? What's up? <laughs> How did you think no. of the name? <laughs> I had nothing to do with this. <laughs> it just, Adam Horvitz. It just seemed like it was a funny idea at the time. It was literally, like as Mike described, we thought we were probably just going to play a handful of gigs. You know, we all our friends were in bands. Everybody was in bands. You just like everybody was probably in five bands that we knew. You just like used to throw together a band and like write a couple songs, play a yeah. couple shows, and you're done. You know. I mean, also part of the fun of being in a band was coming up with the stupidest name you could think of, like so, my band New Wave Old Hat. That's a big one. Angry Samoans <laughs> is a good name. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
when you look at the history of hip-hop and you know the history of hip-hop pretty well, where do you see yourselves fitting in? Like, when you think of the Beastie Boys, what do you think of as being, like, your main place in or contribution to hip-hop? I'd say we're middle school. We're firmly middle school. Or I was going to say we're like the weird uncle. Like, you know how you have a mm, weird that's uncle? Good. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got a weird uncle. Mine is... Well, I won't name any names. But <laughs> <laughs> my Uncle Freddie. I mean, no, come on. My Uncle Freddie is mad cool. What's yeah, no, I mean, that? my Uncle Freddie is my incredibly Uncle cool. My Uncle Freddie's like the Fonz, you But know? you could be both cool and be the, right. the, the weird uncle. I'm kind of the weird uncle, aren't I? Huh? So, so Losi, the kid looks at me like I'm the weird uncle. So what's, that's how it is. What I makes? Guess. I guess. <laughs> what what I makes? Mean, you, not like legal good, uncle. Good weird. Good it's weird. good. It's like good. Un- my uncle Freddie's good weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Know? Save me I mean, the tuckus. Yeah, save me the tuckus <laughs> style. <laughs> so what yeah. makes you compare the Beastie Boys to a weird uncle? Oh, we um, we come we come around just once in a while. We're not always around. You know, it's just sort of once in a while we we'll stop by, say some weird. Sh- things and <laughs> you know just sort of make you laugh and hang out have some fun and then you know we go back to wherever we, it is that we live wherever we came from <laughs> we came from and then we might come back a little way. hey when's the, you know those crazy uncles coming back to visit just see us on thanksgiving yeah we might get a little drunk act stupid you know the next time you know might not be yelling across the room save me the tukas <laughs> thanksgiving yeah i like that well thank you so much for talking with us thanks well, thanks for having us. Okay. Thank you. The Beastie Boys, Mike Diamond, Adam Horowitz, and Adam Yauch, recorded in 2006. Adam Yauch died in 2012 at the age of 47. Tomorrow, we'll continue our hip-hop history series with my interviews with RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan and Andre Benjamin, a.k.a. Andre 3000, from Outkast. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Anne-Marie Boldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Teresa Madden directed today's show. Our co-host is Tanya Mosley. I'm Terry Gross. This advertisement comes from our paid sponsor, Fundrise. High interest rates mean that real estate assets are available at a discount compared to previous valuations. The Fundrise flagship fund plans to expand its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. Add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio at fundrise.com NPR. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund before investing. Read the prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This message comes from NPR sponsor, MassMutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice. But you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com. With more and more information coming at you all day, every day, it can be hard to know where to focus. The new Consider This newsletter from NPR can be that focus. Every weekday afternoon, we take one of the day's biggest stories and break it down in a simple, skimmable format so you can get a better grasp of one important topic and what it means for you in a couple of minutes. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter.